The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles or your devices, Stuart is going to be leading us this morning, and he's going to begin in Romans 8.18 in a few minutes. Stuart Briscoe is a master communicator, a dear friend who we've gotten to know over the last years. I've said uh, I love watching he and Jill finish well, and uh, appreciate that, brother, and to hear voice of maturity and wisdom over the years. Uh, they come to town. Linda Strom is one of our ladies. Linda has a, a ministry, a prison ministry that she heads up, Discipleship Unlimited, and uh, she and Jill are close friends. And so they go in the prison. They're there now. Hopefully they'll be let out sometime today, and uh, they'll be rejoining Stuart there. So would you give a warm TBC welcome to Stuart Briscoe, our dear friend and colleague. You are good, brother. You are good to go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you and good morning. I don't know why it is, but wherever I go, people refer to my age. They keep talking about me finishing well. <laughs> I think they're all expecting me to keel over before I get through my third point, but... If I do, just carry me out. Otherwise, I'll try and finish what I came to say. So it's, uh, it's a joy to be with you again. Thank you for affording us this opportunity. See, seeing uh, everybody knows that I'm getting older, who isn't, by the way? Um, I, I've, I've been thinking about aging a little bit lately. and. Uh, I, I realize that when you get older, there is an assumption you'll get a little wiser. That, that, that makes sense. The, the, the longer you live, the more things you experience, the more things you experience, the more things you can learn. And, and so it, 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 does, it, it is a reasonable assumption that we will actually get a little smarter as we get older. It does not necessarily happen, but we won't go there this morning. One of the things that's happened to me as I've got older and just a little smarter is that I I have realized that arguments are frequently, fundamentally counterproductive. That, that, that was quite a, a, a shocking revelation for me. I am, I am British. I know you could not tell that, but I, I, I am British, and the Brits love to argue. Americans like to get things done, get to the bottom line, cut to the chase, and do something. Brits don't worry about that. They like to argue about it and let somebody else do it. And so, <laughs> so, so I, I have... Uh, spent a lot of, a lot of my life uh, arguing. I must have may have, have enjoyed a lot of it very much indeed. <laughs> but w- w- as I look realistically at the time I've spent uh, arguing, uh, I have, have concluded that there are two possibilities. What, one is you can win the argument, the other is you lose the argument. If, if you win the argument, you do that by defeating somebody. And it's, it's quite possible that that person will be hurt 
they'll be upset and there's a very real probability they will stay out of your way in, in future. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to be, they don't want to be shown up uh, again. So you've won an argument but lost a friend or lost a contact. Then, of course, there's always the possibility you lose the argument. <laughs> and then, of course, they're going to avoid you. Why are they going to spend time with such a dummy as you? Why, why, why waste time on a situation like that? So either way, you win it or you lose it, there's a possibility that the relationship will be damaged in, in some way. So what to do about it? Well, I've decided that it might be a better thing to do to, instead of get, launching into an argument very easily and very quickly, particularly in the climate in, in America at the present time, I mean, it's such a fractious society, isn't it now? There's just people fighting and arguing, doing it in, in very hateful, destructive ways. Uh, it's, it seems to me we look for points of agreement. That, that's kind of a novel thought. Now, uh, so some people say, oh, that's just compromising. That's, that's just ducking the issue. Uh, that, that's just uh, everybody believes whatever they want to do and we just get being tolerant and begin to tolerate the intolerable. No, no I'm not talking about that. Maintain your principles. Uh, keep your convictions. But, re but, re but recognize that there's no point starting off at a point of disagreement if you can find a point of agreement and hopefully build on that and build a relationship that will allow you then to address the areas of difference. So anyway, that's, that's what I've been doing recently. And one, one of the things I've, I've discovered uh, looking for points of agreement is that there aren't very many. <laughs> and so it doesn't take as long. And, but what, one, of the, one of the points of agreement I have discovered is, is this. Things are not the way they ought to be. Things are not the way they ought to be. I, I've tried this out on all kinds of people. I try, I try it out when I'm with a group of people and it's one of those situations where they're talking and, and people are talking over each other, nobody's really listening, and, and nobody's really saying anything that's worth listening to, but everybody is talking and nothing much is happening. And I sometimes have a feeling this, this is time that could probably be put to better use. Perhaps we could inject something of substance into this conversation. And so this is what I've tried doing. You should try it yourself sometime. Well, while this conversation is going along and get, getting nowhere, I suddenly say, things are just not the way things ought to be. And it's a, it's a real conversation killer. <laughs> it, 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 it will stop that conversation dead in its tracks. Well, you better know what to do with it when you've killed it, when you've, when you've stopped it dead in its tracks. Well, give them an illustration of what something that's just happened in your life, you see. And you'll find people will join, join in. And they'll, they'll begin to share. And you, you, you get to know people this way. What's really bothering, what, what's really going on in, the, in, the, in their lives. Well, that, will, that, that conversation will gradually wind down. So you inject a little more life into it. And you say, I was just thinking. 
If, if we say that things are not the way they ought to be, we are presupposing there is a way things ought to be. What, what would it be? <laughs> well, that could lead to quite a productive uh, discussion because now we've been perfectly reasonable, we've agreed more or less things are not the way they ought to be. It's a reasonable presupposition that there is a way things ought to be. We could, we could talk about that for a little while and then you say, I just thought of something else. If there is a way things ought to be and things are not the way they ought to be, how do we get from where they ought to be to where they are? That, that, would, that, would, that was worth thinking about. And then perhaps if they're still with you, or they've decided they've got something they'd rather do than listen to these philosophical things that you're talking about, you could, you could probably say, what, what do you think we can do about it? What do you think we can do about it? Now, one, one of the things that, that I, I have found in that kind of a conversation is that somewhere along the line, you might feel perfectly free to say, well, look, here's, here's one way of addressing what we've been talking about. Things are not the way they ought to be. There is a way things ought to be. How we got from the way they ought to be to the way they are and what we can do about it. And the, the way I've, I've learned to look at it is to look at it from the point of view of Christian a Christian worldview. To look at it from the point of view of a Christian worldview. And the four key words of a Christian worldview are creation, fall, redemption, and glory. That is, for want of a better term, the big, the big picture. Creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Now, things are not the way they ought to be. Well, the, the Christian worldview would call that the fall, you see. But there is a way things ought to be. Christian worldview would say that would be the creation. But how did we get from the, from the creation to the fall, and what can we do about it? The answer is very little, but God has done something about it. That's called redemption. And where's it all going to? Well, it's all going to God solving the problem because this is his world that he created that is fallen, that he is redeeming, and that he has a glorious plan for the created order in the future. Creation, fall, redemption, and glory. So that's, that's what I'd like to talk to you about now for the few minutes re remaining that you've kindly given me and given me your attention this morning. Let's, let's read in the Bible what it has to say on these topics. If you, if you have a Bible, you, you would, might like to turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Now, I'm going to stress these four words. That three of them will appear just as I'm stating them. One of them is implied with a slightly different uh, phrase, a slightly different expression. Here it is, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory, there it is, the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation, there's the creation, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Here's more about the creation. For the creation was subjected to frustration. That's the fall. Creation was subjected to frustration. 
not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation, there it is again, itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. That's the fall, the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So have you got that? We, we find references there to glory. We find references there to creation. We, we find references there to the creation subjected to frustration and being subject to bondage to decay. That is the fall, okay? Then we read on. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That's the fall again. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption, there's, the, there's redemption. That's the fourth word as well. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. So there they are. In, in this very dense passage of scripture, it talks about creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Now let's, let's take those one, one at a time, and I'll keep an eye on the clock for you, so don't you worry about that. <laughs> I'll keep an eye on it. I didn't say I would take any notice of it, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's the way it is. All right, creation, that, that, that's the first word. Now let's see if we can find a point of agreement here. We could get into an argument about creation, we could get into an argument about creationism, we could get into an argument about evolution. That, that, that wouldn't be difficult at all, would it? I mean, give me 30 seconds, we could have a rip-roaring argument on this, see? And probably nobody's minds would be changed either. So let's start with, with a point of agreement here. Ladies and gentlemen, we are all here present today. How's that? How's that for a point of agreement? Isn't it delightful just to be enjoying being together and agreeing about something? We are all here present today. We do share something called existence. Now, does the Christian worldview have anything to say about that? Yes, without apology, without a prologue, without a foreword, the Bible starts off by saying, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and a little later on it, it amplifies that further and says that the, making the heavens and the earth, they didn't use the word universe in those days, but that's basically how we would put it. It, it, it then includes and all that is therein. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is therein. And that's you, that includes you, and that includes me. So a Christian worldview says that, as it, that we were created by God. Now, having said that, it, it, it does say in the beginning without explaining what the beginning was. And it does say that in the beginning God created, but it doesn't tell us about his method of creation. So in other words, there are, there are many things that we do know about the creation, but there are lots of things we don't know about the creation. Now, one of the points of disagreement for many people is disagreeing about science and religion. But I think what we've got to recognize is this, that the Bible was never ever intended to make a scientific statement. Just, just supposing God had decided that he was going to explain all the intricacies of the creation. 
<laughs> well, uh, at, uh, at what level would he have introduced this? You say, well, the way we understand science today. Well, the way we understand science today, that's going to change within the next six to 12 months, isn't it? So in other words, if God had decided that he would describe exactly how he created everything in language that the scientists use right now today, then it would have been out of date. It would be out of date pretty soon. And it would have been incomprehensible for thousands of years. So there was never any attempt to make a scientific statement there. So let's accept this, that there are aspects of, the crea of creation that we do not understand, but this is the territory in which science has free reign to explore and discover and explain. Now, while, while science is busy doing it in their area of expertise, theologians are doing their thing in their realm of expertise. And that realm of expertise does look into very, very carefully into what the Bible actually does say and what the principles of the way it says it apply and have applied down through thousands of years. So when we look at the created order, this is what they tell us. <laughs> the things, things that are created are, exist of uh, things, things like um, same things happening to me as happening the first time. At 88 years of age, my mind will blank out without warning on little things when I need them. But at 88, you admit it, laugh about it, and keep talking, and they will come, <laughs> come back. And, and that's exactly what has happened now. In the created order, they tell us there are... <laughs> you see, it, it's... It's not, not a problem. <laughs> now I've forgotten what it was again. <laughs> the created order thinks are made up of animal, vegetable, and mineral. Animal, vegetable, and mineral. Now if God created all things and all that is within it and we are existing now, that means that we are in some way related to animal, vegetable, and mineral. Now, I have some questions, rather delicate questions to ask you, but please don't be offended. But we have to face up to these things. Would you say you are a mineral, or a vegetable, or an animal? And probably the answer is, you, I, I am none of those things. And you might be quite upset about it. Well, I would understand that. but. There is no question about it that you do have an affinity with those three realms. I don't want to be morbid about this, but when, when you have a funeral, which, which would be normal after you die, but not before, <laughs> the, the person presiding at your funeral will probably intone something like this, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And the reason they would talk like that is that the Bible does say that one day the body will return to the dust and the spirit to God who made it. Now, let's be realistic about it. These bodies of ours, if you don't look after them and they quit working, they'll finish up a pile of minerals. Sorry, but that's how it is. That's the recent point of agreement on this. So uh, is that what you are then, just a heap of minerals? No, because it's, it's possible that your mother told you to eat your veggies. 
And when you ate your veggies, you began, you began to discover that vegetation or vegetables would, would mix with these minerals and produce all kinds of things that allow your body to work in the most remarkable way. It just happens to be a fact. Well, you, that means you must be, well, you're either a heap of minerals that gets stuffed with vegetables or maybe you're an animal. <laughs> Nobody talks about it. Well, of course, we're not, we're not animals. But we do have animal connections. I, I have a very good friend who did, discovered she had a congenital heart disease and that she needed a new valve in her heart or something like this. And they told her, we can give you a mechanical one or we can give you one from an animal. <laughs> it could be from a sheep or a pig or something. I think she got something from a pig fitted into her heart. She's beautiful girl. She has a, th a piece of a pig in, in, in her heart. You can't tell except when she sings. <laughs> no, <laughs> no that, that's not true, that bit. The rest, the rest is true. So, so what is she? Well, what, what she is, she, she is part of the created order. The created order is animal, vegetable, mineral. There's no question about it. She has an affinity with the, with the animal and with the vegetable and with the mineral kingdom. But she isn't an animal or a vegetable or mineral. She's human. So what's the difference? Well, the, the difference is that the human beings were created in the divine image. And what that means, among other things, is this. Let's face it, we have an affinity to the create, with the created order. Animal kingdom, vegetable kingdom, mineral kingdom. But we are made in the divine image. We have an affinity with the divine kingdom. And if we were created that way, this is a Christian, Christian worldview. If we were created that way, what it's really saying is, is this, that in the same way that we relate to other dimensions of the created order, we are uniquely created to relate to the divine order as well. And here's, here's the problem. We don't do very well in this area. Now, when God created all things, he was very obvious that he was the creator and we were the created. So there was an affinity there, but it was a very clearly defined affinity there. Affinity there. And there was a clearly defined differentiation there. Don't confuse the created with the creator. Don't confuse the creator with the created. Or put it another way, God created things so that God would be God and man would be man. And this is the fundamental problem with, with, with our world. <laughs> we, we don't want God to be God and we don't want man to be man. What we want is man to be, to be God. And th this became very clear in, in the beautiful language of Genesis. This is, how, this is how it explains it. God explains that because I'm the creator and you are the created, you are to relate to me and this is the basis on which you relate as the created to the creator. You will relate to me in loving, trusting obedience. Loving, trusting obedience. That, that makes sense as far as, I, as far as I can see it. 
we relate in loving, trusting obedience. Now, there's no point <coughs> saying, I will coerce you, I will make you so that you have no option, and that will be, produce a loving, trusting, obedient child. That, there, has, there has to be some freedom. You can't coerce these things. You can't get hold of a girl by the throat and say, you're going to love me if it's the last thing you do, because the last thing she does will be before she ever got around to loving you. Do it that way. No, what we have to realize is God had to show there was an opportunity for man to choose to love and to trust and to obey God. And this is how he did it. He created this beautiful created order and he looked at it and this is what he said about it. It's good. It's good. It's good. If you like, things were just the way they ought to be. Creation, just the way things ought to be. And now this is how it was going to work. Man, God was going to be God. Man was going to be man. Man would relate to God in loving, trusting, obedience, and to prove it, God said, all right, you've got the whole created order. Explore it, develop it, discover it, use it, benefit from it, look after it, care for it, Oh, and uh, in the middle of it, I'll put one tree, just one tree. <laughs> just don't touch it. I would say that was reasonable. They all created order to enjoy one tree. Don't touch it. And <laughs> you know, you know the story, don't you? It's in, you know, it's in Genesis language, but you know, you know the story, and it's repeated over and over and over and over again that we don't want to do something until we're told we're not to do it. And then suddenly it becomes very appealing. Suddenly it has a seduction all of itself. Never even thought of doing this thing. And now the very idea that we should not do it gives us a desire to want to experiment and to do it. That's what's got many of us into trouble. It's what has ruined many aspects of our lives. And that's, that's what happened. And man chose not to love God, not to trust God, not to obey God. And according to scripture, this is what happened. Because man is intricately bound up as an integral part of the created order, man fell from his unique position with God and brought the whole created order crashing down with him so that the whole creation was subjected to frustration and became subject to bondage of decay. This is what we call the fall. And things are not the way they ought to be. Things are not the way between God and man. For instead of God being God and man being man, God is making every effort to make sure that he is in charge of the situation and God is becoming increasingly irrelevant. That is precisely what is happening in America today. Fall. That is why things are not the way they ought to be. Now, people get a bit nervous when you talk about the fall. 
talk about bondage to decay, talk about things like sin and death that enter in. This, this is what the, the Christian worldview says. The Christian worldview says, into this pristine created order with man uniquely created to have an affinity with the divine and the secular and to be in tune with heaven and with earth in all its dimensions, set up like that, the thing went south. It went wrong. And it has to do with human disobedience. That's where we are now. Theologians have a word for this. They talk about they talk about they talk about declension. They talk about what's the term? Depravity. Thank you. I'll take this guy around with me for when I can't just take him for. I should probably have notes, and then I wouldn't need to take somebody around to remind me. But but I lose my notes. So yeah. So, so there's a thing called total depravity. Thing called total depravity. Now, total depravity, depravity I always thought was that, man, that ma- mankind is so absolutely rotten and so putrid and so awful and so stinky rotten that there's nothing good about us and we're just worms and creeps and, and it's a terrible, terrible world. <laughs> well, I had a bit of a problem with that. And uh, it, it was when I started listening to Mozart because I, I just loved Mozart's music. I, I started listening to it because I read something that said that Mozart helps you to study. <laughs> and I needed all kinds of help with studying. And it also said that it improved your intelligence and I really, really needed help there. So I started listening to Mozart, and I loved it. I found it so invigorating, so uplifting, so exciting. I just loved Mozart, that's all. And then I saw the movie Amadeus. And I looked at this character, and I thought, what a creep. <laughs> what, what, uh, what an unpleasant little person he was. And then I thought, how in the world can something as sublime as Mozart's music come out of somebody who's such a creep. That bothered me a little bit, and then I went in the Marines. (laughs) And I got in a group of men there who were, well, how can I put it gently? They were not angelic. (laughs) They were a bunch of Marines. But the amazing thing about it was this, I had little in common with these men, except we wore the same uniform, but their lifestyle was totally different from anything that I'd ever experienced in my life. It was not pleasant at all, but I discovered an affinity with those men. I discovered something that they called esprit de corps. I discovered a bond that we had. I discovered this strange idea of no man left behind. I discovered that these few people who I probably they wouldn't give me the time of day normally. I wouldn't give them the time of day normally. I discovered actually that there was a very real possibility, if necessary, they would die for me. And I thought, how in the world can you get such nobility, such sacrifice, 
How, how can you get such contradictions out of one human being? How, how can we be so creative one minute and one so destructive another minute? How can we be so joyful and kind and gracious to one person and turn off uh, to the next person and be bitter towards them? How, how, how do we do it? How can it be both there? It seems to me that we have a problem understanding what it means for a man to be fallen. But Jim Packer was very helpful, the English theologian. He says total depravity does not mean that man is at every point as bad as he could be. Have you got that? Total depravity does not mean that man is at every point as bad as he could be. Rather, at no point is he as good as he should be. That's different. That's different. What it really says is this, in our fallenness, listen, nothing is the way it ought to be, including me. Nothing is the way it ought to be. Now think about that. The world is full of a created order that is out of sync, that is out of whack, that is not harmonious, that it is clashing, it is crashing, it is, it is fighting, it is resisting. Does it sound like the world we're living in right now? Things are not the way they ought to be. Creation, fall. What are we going to do about it? Well, the good answer, of course, is this very little. But God has done something about it. This is what God did. When he looked at his created order, instead of deciding just to scrap it and start again, he decided to redeem it. And he turned to his son, if I can put it this way. He turned to his son and said, that's my world, and I want it back. And I want you to go and get it. I want you to step into that fallen world and I want you to go about the business of redeeming it. Redeeming the whole of the humanity that is fallen, that is responsible for the fall, touching every aspect of the created order. And it's going to cost you a life of servanthood. It's going to cost you a life that will lead to betrayal. It's going to cost you going to the cross. It's going to cost you the rejection of humanity. It's going to cost you the, the assumption of the sins of the whole world. It's going to mean that I, the holy God, who has been one with you from time immemorial, for all eternity, will be separated from you because I cannot look upon iniquity for you will bear the sins of the whole world's son. It's going to take all this to redeem this fallen world. Redemption. And the son said, I'll do it. And he came and he did. And God put his stamp of approval on what he did and he raised him from the dead. And when he raised Jesus from the dead, he started something called a new creation. 
And then Jesus went around and said, now I have been, I've died and I've risen again so that you can be reconciled to God, so that God can redeem you from your fallenness, so God can roll back the forces of evil in your life and begin to establish his kingdom reign within you. If this is what you want and you will yield to my kingdom reign within you, God will take you and he will begin a work of transformation in you. And this message has gone out and it has been proclaimed. We were singing about screaming it from the mountains and proclaiming it from, I don't know if we even talk to our neighbors about it, but we can sing about these glorious concepts because this is what we should be doing. And letting people know that God has taken an initiative in redemption and redemption can be summarized as this, divine intervention in the fallen world, rolling back the consequences of the fall. And where's it all going to end? It's all going to end when those who have been redeemed through the precious work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, and through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, when those people die and pass into eternity, even though there's been a great work of transformation over the years that they've known Christ, they'll still be far from perfect. And they can't go into heaven in that imperfect state because if they're taking perfection into heaven, it won't be heaven. And so when they see Jesus, their work of transformation will be complete. And there'll be no spot and there'll be no wrinkle and there'll be no evidence of fallenness because they will be in the likeness of Christ. And there'll be people coming from every kindred and tongue and tribe and nation in their millions upon millions upon millions of people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And there they will congregate around him and this fallen world, God will then turn his attention to it. And scripture tells us that when the sons of God are revealed in all their glory because they're in the likeness of Jesus, when that happens, the old world will pass away and new heavens and new earth will be redeemed, will, will be created, characterized by righteousness. In other words, things will be put just right. New heavens new earth, human beings who are a new creation because they're all part of the resurrection of Christ who was started something new when he rose from the dead. And this new heaven and new earth populated by a new community living in the likeness of Christ will need to be equipped for life in the new heavens and the new earth. And the equipment will be dished out to them immediately. And you know what the new equipment will be? New bodies. As ideally suited to the new heavens and the new earth, as your old body is ideally suited to the fallen world, the only one problem, like the fallen world, your body is fallen to. That's why your memory goes. That's why other things go. That's why you get old. That's why you slow down. That's why your hair drops out. That's why your hair turns color if you let it. But we'll get to that another subject. <laughs> you see, that's, that, that's, that's what, what happens. But now we see there'll be new heavens and new earth and a new community. And the new bodies will be ideally suited to listen to this 
eternity in new heavens and new earth where everything is the way it ought to be. Ladies and gentlemen, that is my attempt at giving you a brief introduction to a Christian worldview. And I suggest that you go and tell your friends things are not the way they ought to be. <laughs> and start there and you can finish up with a great story. God bless you and amen. Wow. That's what I try to say Sunday after Sunday, but don't quite get there. <laughs> Stuart, it's always a delight to have you. Always a delight. Thank you. Thank you for your investment in our body. Thank you, especially for your investment in the Word and in our Savior. And as you hear those words, hopefully it's something we walk away with and recognize. We all fit in that picture somewhere. And I pray for you today, my friends, that uh, you've met the Redeemer and you know the Redeemer so that you'll be in glory one day in this new heaven and new earth. Amen. Let's stand together and thank the Lord for our time. Father, we give you glory. And one day we'll be with you in glory. But until then, we recognize things are not the way that they ought to be. But one day you'll set all things right. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you thank Stuart one more time for being with us this morning? Thank you.